You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eugene Linden has written for publications including Time, the National Geographic, and the New York Times. He's the author of nine books including Affluence and Discontent, The Parrot's Lament, The Alms Race, The Winds of Change, and Silent Partners. His new book is The Ragged Edge of the World, Encounters at the Frontier Where Modernity, Wild Lands, and Indigenous Peoples Meet. Thank you for joining me, Eugene. Delighted to be here. Eugene, this is such a, a wonderful book. It really compels me to turn the page every single time. <laughs> I thought I really enjoyed reading. I couldn't wait to find out where you are going to go next. You make a habit of traveling to the world's most inhospitable places under the worst possible conditions. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually when you're a journalist, uh, it's the worst possible conditions that get you there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always felt like I was showing up at the last act of a tragedy, you mm -hmm. know, where I'd never... You, you could sort of glimpse but never get the full appreciation of the past glory of the protagonist you mm -hmm. know, because I was going to these places principally because they were in trouble. Now, um, one of the things you talk about is just in, in the, uh, your introduction, you talk about your introduction to journalism and right. your introduction as a journalist. And I think you uh, make some interesting points in your first experience in Vietnam. Right. Well, <clears throat> until I went off to college, I really hadn't gone anywhere. <laughs> um, I had never ridden in a plane until my freshman year in college and um, been around the country a bit. Um, then um, I happened to go to college and just as the Vietnam War was really ramping up. And I'd, I had a, a weird military history. I mean, I, um, I had an appointment to West Point um, I went to um, Yale instead, and I went on a naval scholarship, ROTC, and then around sophomore year I realized, I began feeling this is a bogus war, uh, Vietnam, and, uh, <clears throat> and, I, and I started trying to get out of, of, of the thing, and uh, to make a long story short, ultimately I, I did get an honorable discharge as a, as a CO, and uh, a conscience objector. And, then I went, it was literally a matter of weeks um, after that, that I went to Vietnam, but I went as a journalist. And what had happened was um, a lot of friends of mine were in the war, and they started coming back, and they started telling me about fragging um, when enlisted men tried to um, blow up their officers, literally. The term comes from fragmentation grenade. And uh, I thought, Jesus, this really captures the, you know, whatever it was that was the tensions of that war, because while fraggings occurred in all wars with an incompetent officer on the front lines, men would get rid of them one way or another. But the phenomenon in Vietnam was what's called the rear echelon fragging, which was happening behind the lines where there was no danger, uh, or very little danger. And what was explaining that? And it really, it had to do with a lot of things, I won't go into it, but it had to do with the, the, uh, the tensions uh, between the draftees uh, who were often unwilling to be where they were, and then the officer and the non-coms, who the non-coms were lifers and they were alienated from the men, and the officers were, didn't have the non-coms as a safety valve, so things tended to boil over. That's compressing a lot of stuff. But it, um, I went over to Vietnam and I, um, I looked ridiculously young, um, and so nobody took me seriously. Maybe they still don't, I don't know, but in any event, I um, managed to get in places that no one else had gotten into and gotten into long bin stockade, and, and I put together this story, which um, in one sense um, vindicated all my doubts about the war, and I'd gone into that story um, really questioning my own judgment, whether, why was I not doing this, all this other stuff, and it, it really kind of turned my life around as well. And your youthful inexperience got you places where you might not otherwise have gotten, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I'd just go up and talk to people, and by the time MACV, which is the Military Activities Command Vietnam, found out what I was up to, I really I already had the story. And then they started trying to shut me down, and I went off to Cambodia and wrote it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And but a part and parcel of this first trip to Vietnam, I had a grant from the Fund for Investigative Journalism, which had uh, actually funded Cy Hirsch's work on My Lai and, and other things. And I had this commission uh, from Saturday Review, which is a big magazine back then. Uh, so I turned it into a trip around the world, um, going and coming. And, uh, and that just gave me a bug. Um, there were places I saw, places I didn't get to, and I just knew um, what I wanted to do after that. Um, and I came home, so I had a complete reverse journalistic career, by the way. I came home. Um, and that article, uh, which ran as a cover story, got a lot of attention. Um, and so, as things have it, you know, some publishers approached me and said, what do you want to do? Um, do you want to write a book about Vietnam? And I said, no, I basically think the article covered, you know, the aspect of Vietnam I wanted to write about. And I said, what do you want? Do you want to write a book? I said, yeah, I want to write about these experiments teaching chimps language. <laughs> it's, I threw everybody for a loop. but. Out of that came a book called Ape's Mental Language, and, uh, and then a series of about three other books that, I, that I, uh, one book begets another, at least until they tell you to stop. You know, uh, one of the things about writing is I think if you give a writer any encouragement whatsoever, he'll keep writing, whereas if you fail as a writer early, you go off and do something lucrative, you know, like <laughs> run for president as JFK did or <laughs> whatever. But um, in any case, I, I got enough encouragement to keep going and, uh, and then um, started a series of trips um, uh, to very uh, you know, remote places and um, wrote a series of books and eventually uh, uh, in the early uh, mid-80s, uh, late 80s I guess, ended up at Time Magazine where I was writing about global environmental issues and, and that launched a whole new series of forays and for National Geographic. And, um, into uh, some more remote places. And what happened is that um, in writing this book, it, I'd been doing it for so long, you know, the Vietnam thing was 40 years ago, mm -hmm. um, that I realized that I was an index of change. You know, I, so many of the places I visited back in the early 70s um, were utterly transformed uh, when I returned to them. Mm -hmm. I went to Vietnam during the war, I returned to Vietnam in the mid late 90s to go to this place. Um, that was, at least in the early 70s, in North Vietnam, up in the this remote place called Vu Quang, up in the mountains, where they kept discovering these new species of animal. And, you know, 50 years of warfare had basically kept people out of there, except for the Viet Cong. It was right next to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm -hmm. And there were these animals that were large animals existing in plain sight that were un unknown to science. Uh, but Vietnam, in the meantime, had been utterly transformed. That area was still pretty intact, but, you know, I think a, a good half of the Viet, uh, of Vietnam's forest disappeared from when I was first there until when I was there again. You know, when I, uh, back in the late 80s, I went to Chapuri, where Chico Mendez was from. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I had to charter a little plane, and I, it was a sleepy little river town. And next time I went back, there was a superhighway going into it with ranches and lawns along the way. And so, I have a chance to sort of see the full cycle, you know, from when people, you know, around the world it gets played out and it's been played out for years and will continue to be played out where naive people will say, yeah, we'll sell off the forest, looks like good money. And then, you know, they'll see what happens as a result of logging and they'll say, who sold off our forests, you know, and um, generally they haven't had much benefit from it and that's why I call this the ragged edge, you know, mm -hmm. where modernity, wildlands, and indigenous peoples all collide. You know, when you talk about Vietnam, it was really interesting to me what you pointed out, um, how war did seem to preserve uh, some, of the, some of the landscape. And I love this discovery of new animals. Uh, it's a field I'm very interested in called cryptozoology. Right, right. <laughs> and so talk about some of the large animals. I mean, these are not like uh, termites or, or insects. No, no, they? no they're, they're, they're not microbes. <laughs> these are 100-pound animals or more. Um, but first, your, your, your earlier thing that uh, war can be destructive, obviously, mm -hmm. but it can also keep people at bay. And, and so the, the takeaway there is that nature um, finds its opportunities where they are. Exactly. You know, it's not, war, what, nature has no particular investment in what, whether we have war or peace. There's no investment in anything, it just reacts. Mm -hmm. 
and if uh, like in Nicaragua, Nicaragua during the Contra um, uh, uprising, um, illegal logging came to a halt because the forests were uh, um, dangerous. Um, in in uh, in the on the uh, Guyana Plateau in, in Suriname, there's a low-level guerrilla war that went on for decades with what are called the Maroons, kept people out of the forest. So when you go in there now, or at least when I went in, there were naive animals, mm. you know, and most intact ecosystem in um, in 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 in, much, in most of South America. And uh, the DMZ, That's you know, what you which said, is yeah. like the funniest. Uh, <laughs> I went up there uh, back in 2000, um, and you know, it was the most heavily mined area on the planet, and it's probably the most intact part of that peninsula, you know, <laughs> because uh, that's kept people out, and the animals somehow figured out to step around the mines, or at least I haven't heard, or biologists have told me they don't get blown up. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so th there's that, but in, v in Vu Quang, um, which is in this cordillera that separates South Vietnam and uh, Laos, um, mm -hmm. it's uh, really kind of remote. It has the distinction of most slippery place on the planet, as far as I can tell. You introduced the... Uh, I introduced the reef walker, the which reef I'm, yeah, I'm hoping the poachers <laughs> don't discover that that's easy to get around with. A lot of leeches and stuff, hot as hell. I mean, just incredibly hot and humid. Um, but uh, just native hunters were up there, and they would put um, this Vuquang ox, which is this archaic species, um, you know, it's, it's a little, somewhat like a deer, an ungulate. Um, it is an ungulate. Um, and it had these little um, horns. That, um, these scientists would walk by these houses, and they'd see the horns mounted outside the door. It wasn't like this animal was a secret. You know, they were hunting them every day when they could, and yet it was unknown to science. And they discovered like four or five of these um, species uh, of large animals up there. And to put that into perspective, I think it was only like six large species of, of mammal um, have been discovered, you know, from 1800 to 1900. So it's almost like a doubling of new species just from this one area. And so the, the good news of that is that um, there are still places on the planet that we haven't, you know, explored, and we, um, and where there's still surprises to be had. Now, what what interests me too is that there the implications of cryptozoology. Every time we discover a new species, what the implications are is that humanity has penetrated yet another ragged edge, right. stepped to the wrong side, and that ultimately whatever the environment that new species used to live in will be damaged in colonized by... Well, that's right. I mean, it, usually um, it gets easier to discover new species as you sort of reduce the perimeter <laughs> of the forest. It gets easier to go in and they come in contact with people. So that's a... It's not necessarily an altogether good sign. I mean, it's nice that there are these species out there that we don't know about. On the other hand, um, you know, as this perimeter shrinks, as this ragged edge contracts, um, we expect to see more of them, but they're going to be um, pressed to the limit. We are the most invasive species there is. Well, I mean, that's sort of the, in a nutshell, my career. I mm -hmm. mean, it's this question of how did one species, you know, just that in a blink of an eye could reach a point where its fears, its appetites, its spending habits control the destiny of every ecosystem and almost every species and every culture on the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the question that's informed my career. Um, you know, uh, E.O. Wilson, a great biologist, said that humanity was the first species to become a geophysical force. And you can see that, you know, and, and I've seen it in my Visually, travels. Visually, yeah. Well, there's, we so dominate the planet that you really can't throw something away without it landing on somebody's head. And, you know, I was in Midway Island in the middle of the Pacific, um, mm -hmm. which is about as remote as you could get. And yet it is littered with plastic because it happens to lie within the... Great Pacific garbage patch. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and um, well, actually, and, and, or it is influenced by the Great Pacific garbage patch. It, the Hawaiian Islands are like a comb. Mm -hmm. You know, that comb. All these collect these <laughs> gyres collect all the garbage around, uh, plastic garbage around the world, which floats around, and then it it gets combed onto the beaches of the islands, and then it gets brought there in the uh, by the albatross who pick it up at the. What are, uh, at the uh, the ocean fronts, the uh, convergence zones where they feed. Um, so 
you know, they, they, and then I went to like northern Yakutia um, in the Russian Far East up in the Arctic. And mm -hmm. here's this place twice the size of California with a, a, a population of Fresno or something. It's about a million people. <laughs> and you would find people, indigenous people up north, um, who would have concentrations of heavy metals in their bodies equivalent to as if they worked next door to a nickel factory. I mean, it, like they worked in the most... Are these you know, the Chukichis? The Chukotsk and, uh, and, yeah. and others, yes. Um, the, um, and the, the reason is there's this phenomenon called the Arctic Front, which is sort of the atmospheric equivalent of these gyres in the ocean where you know, uh, industrial pollutants go up into the air, get picked up by these atmospheric, uh, you know, these great upper atmosphere winds, mm -hmm. and, and, and they get to the north, and then they fall out in, when it, in precipitation as snow, and then the snow melts, and they get into the permafrost, and they get picked up by the people. And so these people live about as far as you can from industrial society, and, and yet have all the, many of them, not all of them, but have all the illnesses of an advanced industrial society without any pollution controls whatsoever. Now, you went to, to Borneo, so tell us about the Penans, who are one of the most, uh, they were for a while, when you first encountered them, they were still pretty primitive and still uh, pretty not too disturbed, were they? Well, yes, uh, there were still a few hundred hunters and gatherers. Mm -hmm. Nomad, um, nomadic tribes, when you first Well, most out. of them were at that point, well, there were some nomadics, mm -hmm. but you could count on, you know, two hands and feet, mm -hmm. um, the number of nomadic clans, you know. Um, and uh, most were semi-nomadic at that point, which meant they had long houses and would venture out mm -hmm. from there. But, I mean, they were under intense pressure from logging, and in fact, um, they, they were a tribe that, in a way, fought back passively, would block ro logging roads and things like that, and would be arrested. But that's what actually, um, one of the uh, aspects that I was most interested in in this book was the kind of cultural Alzheimer's that is going on as mm -hmm. tribes abandon their ways. It's kind of, I, I, I use the phrase a silent holocaust because it's, it, it leaves no visible imprint and yet a culture disappears. Sure. Um, and what had happened was I'd talking to an anthropologist. I was in Indonesia, and he was telling me about the Penans, and uh, he was saying that, you know, the the, the nomadic Penans would hunt the boar, um, according when in when they saw this one particular butterfly appear, it, mm -hmm. it signaled that the boar would be coming through, and they'd go out and they'd use that, and it, um, and uh, but that they would under they knew what b butterfly it was, but their children, they're going to school in Miri or one of the other towns, mm -hmm. would have no idea what the butterfly was. And uh, and I thought this is this, this sort of captured the issue, the problem right there is that right. nobody was trying to hurt the children or, or anything like that. They were just their attention shifted and this knowledge just drifted away. And so I had to get there, and uh, I I did. Um, get there. I, I did a, a, a cover for Time some years ago called Lost Tribes, Lost Knowledge about this phenomenon, and this was the signal story in, the, in that piece, um, where I went, I, I managed to get up and meet with a bunch of the headmen from a bunch of different clans. Mm -hmm. And uh, sure enough, we talked about all the different types of knowledge, and I go into great detail in the book about, you know, what they, the, the kind of... Uh, Entente they, they forged between modernity and their traditional knowledge, and they were all it was alive for them. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew the butter. It was Lap Yapuhan. If I'm probably mangling the pronunciation, was the name of the butterfly. I knew all about it. Then I went down and again uh, visited some of the students in uh, in uh, Maruti or Miri. Um, sorry, in Miri, and uh, you know asked them about it, and you know they looked at me like I had three heads. They had no idea what butterfly you're talking about, and. So I was seeing that and firsthand and just was see, could see it all over the world. In New Guinea, you know, where um, Father Frank Mahalik, who a saintly guy, would say that you know, when he was teaching, um, he was a, a divine word uh, missionary, and he wanted to teach the indigenous cultures um, mm -hmm. about, their, about the glory of their cultures. And, it would, the students would be embarrassed. He said it was the least popular course on his campus. So it was all over the world that this was going on. It's, uh, this is a point you make again and again, is that when the children are in the 
best of uh, intentions being educated with the knowledge they need to deal with the modern world. Just by virtue of that education, it's re not only um, displacing the, their own knowledge of the culture within them, it's actually making the culture itself disappear. It's a, like a big eraser. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, I mean, and it's a voluntary eraser. It's yeah. like you're erasing your own culture. Um, and Eternal sunshine of the spotless minds. Yeah, and it, just the very nature of, I'm sending my kids so they can deal in the modern world, devalues what you're teaching them. Mm -hmm. and, and so every now and then I would come across people who actually realized that their, their own cultures had value. And that, that, so there were some kind of magnificent stories as well. I mean, um, there was a fellow in New Guinea, same Majnap, who went around to towns, you know, uh, preaching that their knowledge of the forest had real value. Mm -hmm. um, the pygmies, they, they had an attitude, um, and I, they're, they're wonderful uh, people, and they preternatural knowledge of the forest, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I can tell you a story in a sec, but, um, you know, they, their attitude was, well, you white people are good at some stuff outside the forest, and we're good at stuff in the forest, you know, and, and by God, they were. And, um, uh, you know, I'll, well, I'll tell you one story. Um, I'd written, I've written a lot about um, apes, mm -hmm. and um, I was uh, doing a story on apes and humans for National Geographic, and I went to uh, uh, the uh, <coughs> southeast corner of Central African Republic, and going out looking for gorillas with um, uh, uh, some Ba'aka pygmies, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and uh, one of them, you know, you never really know because pygmies have a great sense of humor um, whether they're trying to have you on or not. And so they'd tell me these stories and I'd be listening and, and then the stories would get a little more outlandish. And, and then they, one said, well, my uncle um, saw a chimp uh, battling gorillas and they were using weapons and that's how the chimps won. And I thought, oh, you know, he's just trying to, you know, épater le bourgeois, he's trying to, you know, um, and you see what, what, how gullible this, 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 this Westerner was. And so I put it aside. Okay, so flash forward about 10 years. Um, I'm at a conference and I run into a, a very well-known Harvard um, anthropologist named David Rangham who had a long-term study site in Uganda. And uh, Richard Rangham, sorry. And um, he said, well, one of my researchers has seen a chimp using a weapon. Um, uh, to hit, uh, and it was in, in this case, it was not not the nicest stories. It was male chimps beating female chimps with sticks. You know, mm -hmm. um, a two thousand one moment. A two thousand exactly. And um, so I said, I have to see this. And there, I had this ridiculous trip where I tacked a trip to Uganda onto a trip I had to take to Kenya, and, and went across the country and back in two days, and got to the research site at four in the morning to track the chimps and see the chimps in question, and then drove back across the country. But in any event, so this was extraordinary. I talked to the researchers and everything else and, and got, a, I got a picture of these observations which were, were credible and documented, mm -hmm. even to the point of retrieving the sticks. So then I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking back to this pygmy story again. Hmm. Oh, so they do use sticks. Then a couple of years later, I didn't get there, but I read about a, a, a researcher who was in, um, um, I think in Senegal, mm -hmm. who witnessed chimps using sticks to kill, to hunt, and to kill what are called bush babies, which is a small primate. Um, and also, okay, so sticks are, uh, chimps are using sticks not just on their own, but actually as a weapon. And so you're getting pretty close to uh, chimps fighting gorillas, so maybe I shouldn't have been so quick to sort of put that story aside. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the stories that you, things you talk about is um, Rapa Nui, Easter Island. Oh, yeah. And, and I, you know, I really didn't know how, how you know, this, these various theories of the, you know, depopulation. So talk about uh, Jared Diamond's very popular theory and, and the competing theories because it's so interesting to see the way we can turn our own uh, perceptions upside down. Right, right. Um, well, it, the, it's a perfect story of ecocide because mm -hmm. um, at about the, um, about the time that Europeans first arrived at Easter Island, um, they, or at least according to this one version of the story, found basically people, 
they, these giant moas, you know, these, mm -hmm. these, these statues that the Easter Island's famous for, but just a few hundred people living in, you know, like incredibly primitive position, uh, conditions. And it, it, it didn't make sense that these people could have built this. What, what happened to that great civilization? And, um, you know, and Jared Dion goes into his theory that, um, you know, they, they cut the trees um, to transport the moas down to the, to the side and ultimately the deforestation on, reached a point where they could not, you know, build canoes or fish or anything else, and society devolved into cannibalism and all these other things. Um, now, from the get-go, there were some, sci uh, uh, some scientists who, who took issue with this. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm at the forefront of this is a, 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 a man at the uh, University of Hawaii named Terry Hunt. And what he noticed was that um, in Hawaii, in, uh, on the island of the Ua Plain, I'm probably mispronouncing that as well, um, that there was a similar kind of collapse. And in that case, it had to do with rodents eating the palm nuts. So that it wasn't the humans cutting the trees, or the humans cut the trees, but it was the actual extreme overpopulation by a kind of rat that um, ate all the nuts and so the trees weren't reproducing. And those rat he, uh, rats eventually made it with the Polynesians to Easter Island. So his theory was that um, it wasn't the humans um, who, who led to the overpopulation, but their fellow travelers in a way, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the rats that came with him. And um, I, you know, uh, on the one hand, it's still a, uh, it's still a story of ecological collapse. Mm -hmm. um, but a very different one, you know, than than the than the version that that I that I'd heard, you know, um, and read about, you know, in, in, in Jared Diamond, um, and his art, his uh, Hunt further argued that um, the collapse, you know, occurred was ongoing when the Europeans arrived, but also that the cannibalism, the cannibalism really was overstated, and it was really a product of a hyperactive uh, missionary. Um, trying to demonize the indigenous culture, and, and so that a lot of the stories that we heard about from the, you know, the, the sort of cultural devolution of Easter Island were kind of fiction. They weren't really true, and that, um, and, and then uh, this, the, I, I was intrigued with this theory because um, it, 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 humans, whenever they arrive on an island, whether it be uh, Madagascar or whether it be Cuba or something, there's usually an extinction uh, event that follows. Mm -hmm. um, and other scientists have, have posited that really it's the, um, the, the microbes and the, and, the, uh, and the animals that come with the humans that are doing most of the damage, not the humans themselves by hunting. And in evidence of this um, is that typically, once humans have arrived someplace, it's the big, slow reproducing creatures that die off. The ones who would not have the defenses against the microbes, of, you know, who have adapted to having few microbial or other enemies and have a long period between offspring. And the weedy kind of species flourish. And so that has happened in Madagascar. It happened in North America with the giant sloths and the, and the others disappearing. Of course, climate change probably played a role there as well at the end of the last ice ages. Um, and, um, it, you know, and in Cuba it happened. Um, where a whole lot of species died off after mm -hmm. the humans first arrived on Cuba. So I was intrigued with the Easter Island thing because it, it, it kind of made it fit into that larger story. I mean, I think this debate is ongoing. Um, clearly, Jared Diamond has his own counter arguments to this, but it looks like that's a more complicated story than, than the, the, the kind of simplistic tale of ecocide that it was first presented as. Now, you've been collecting the stories in this book for a long, long time. They reach back to the beginning of your career. So I'd like you to just talk about um, this difference. Now you've achieved a lot of you know, perspective. Um, global warming has you know, become a, an issue. So I'd like you to talk about looking back on your, your travels from 1970 and looking back what you wrote then, what you're writing now, how you felt then, how you felt now, and how you kind of put together this book. It seems like it must have been very difficult for you to put this all together. Well, it was. Um, you know, it was 10 years from the time I contracted to do it until the time I turned it in and another couple of years and sort of revising and such. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, 
one of the things that has happened is that all the warnings of when I f that first got me out into the field in the 1970s mm -hmm. have come true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the threats that people were worried about, you know, habitat destruction. Uh, I remember reading articles by Tom Lovejoy and, uh, and, and Dylan Ripley in Science about the real threat to species was not hunting but habitat destruction. Mm -hmm. You know, because unless you have a place to live, you know, the species... No one can hunt the, you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, and, um, and many of the sort of threats of that era have, have come to pass. And in the meantime, new threats have arisen. Um, uh, you mentioned climate change, which uh, really um, got on my radar uh, in the 80s. Um, and I too was, you know, I wasn't, I was never a, a skeptic, but I thought, thought, God, in a great panoply of threats, this thing is way off in the future. Now, in the late 70s, uh, Roger Revelle, you know, a, 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 a late and, you know, highly respected, uh, you know, atmospheres researcher and a bunch of other uh, policymakers and scientists were commissioned by Jimmy Carter mm -hmm. to address this threat of climate change. And they wrote a report, uh, which they delivered just before he left office, uh, that said, um, Unless we make changes in our use of fossil fuels, we are likely to see changes in climate by the end of this millennium, by the end of this century. And they were right on the money. Mm -hmm. But uh, they left, you know, Carter got the report, nothing happened. Rod Ronald Reagan couldn't care less about the issue. He came into office and, and it was put on the back burner. And in fits and starts, it's remained on the back burner um, ever since. And um, in the, uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, climate has been changing, and we're, we're manifestly seeing the, the evidence of climate change, and it's also changed my thinking. Um, one of the things I've done over the years is I, I went up to um, Churchill um, on Hudson Bay mm -hmm. and uh, was looking at the impact of, uh, of climate change on, on uh, polar bears. And um, I, I was interested because polar bears were threatened by hunting in the 70s. Right. And then um, various um, treaties and actions were taken to protect the polar bear from hunting. And so it recovered. Its numbers recovered around the world, only to run into this buzzsaw of climate change. And, and the, uh, the issue for polar bears on Hudson Bay is that their strategy is to estivate, sleep in the summer, which is the opposite of hibernating. Mm -hmm. And then in the winter, they go out on the ice and they hunt ring seals. And you need the ice to hunt ring seals because they'll hang out at the air holes where the uh, ring seals come up to breathe and then they'll swipe them and kill them. And, um, but they have to eat enough um, in order to m get through this hot estivation period during the warm months when they can't hunt. They essentially don't eat for several months. And that's okay for a thousand pound male, but a female who weighs less and has two cubs to feed, it puts her on the edge of survival or over the edge of survival. And what's been happening is the ice has been steadily shrinking um, in Hudson Bay. The ice season has been steadily shrinking. It warms later, melts earlier, and it's thinner. And this has completely um, overturned the, the strategy of the Hudson Bay polar bears and the northern polar bears face other threats as the northern ice retreats as well, um, along with walrus and a hell of a lot of other creatures that, uh, that also depend on the ice. And so the lesson for me um, was that climate change really t trumps every other environmental issue, and it will going forward. Um, the Indoki, this forest in the Congo, which is... Right. You talk about that dust from humans. Dust. Yeah, well, then that dust from the Sahara. Uh -huh. Dust from the Sahara blowing in. and. Um, you know, so, so uh, if, if that dries out much further, that's a forest that even though it now has all sorts of protection um, as in, and it is endured, and it's a great story because it's endured, it'll all be for naught if it dries out much further because there won't be enough moisture to support a wet tropical forest. And it is probably the most intact, um, in terms of animal life at least, um, uh, tropical forest in the Congo Basin and perhaps the world where you have naive animals that never been hunted, never seen a human. Um, but there's a human threat, which is climate change, which is now impinging on their lives. Well, you talk, too, about that, how much easier it, it is now to get to the 
edge of that, whereas before it was really quite a journey. Now you can pretty much drive up. Right, yeah, in the early, when I went there, it was like the African queen. I mean, you're picking your way through quicksand by hopping from stake to stake that had been planted in the, in the in the, in, the, in the quicksand, and um, you took, had to walk through quicksand. Well, I mean, it's more dramatic than it sounds. If you, know, if you slipped off the thing, you'd fall up to here. You wouldn't be gurgling and waving goodbye. Um, but uh, the uh, it, yeah, it took a couple of days to get to the edge of the forest, to get to the river, the Sangre. I mean, the Indoki River, uh, and then that was. A, very difficult to cross, um, but now you can drive there in a half hour from Bamasa. Getting to Bamasa is no easy, no picnic, but it's not like it was, and that's the case of almost every place on the planet. Still, however, I, one of the things that struck me as I read about it in your various uh, travels through Africa was <clears throat> while you can get from one place to another, it's not easy, it's not friendly, it's <laughs> not like you're just, it's not like driving from, you know, San Francisco to LA. That's, that's actually absolutely true, and um, in some senses, some parts of the world are getting larger. For instance, in uh, what was called Zaire, mm -hmm. you know, now the Congo. Had some um, great adventures in Zaire. Yeah, no, that, that country, <laughs> it, it, it was and is just rotten to the core. And, you know, at the turn of the last century when the Belgians ran it, mm -hmm. um, although they, they were brutal in every other respect, there was a network of rails and, thing, and roads in the country where you could get to Equator in the center of the Congo, um, you know, in a matter of, 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 of hours, you know, um, or days, um, but without any real discomfort, or you could go by river or whatever. And that infrastructure has completely disappeared. Um, I chartered a plane uh, to get to a, a, a basically a mission, a missionary, a mission town, um, and then managed to scrimp together a, a, enough gas and a, and a car to get us out to this research station. And um, it really, um, you know, it, it, you, you encounter corruption at, at every point, and it was almost comical. Um, there was a, I was going, this, this case it was for a story for National Geographic. And I was traveling with Franz Lanting, who's a, you know, a very famous wildlife photographer. He lives around here, I think. Um, and um, he had like dozens of cases of very expensive camera equipment. So when we landed and all this equipment was there, um, the local commandante came bicycling up, saw this equipment, <laughs> and we had like we were festooned with permissions that we'd gotten from the government with all the stamps and yeah, it, you know, looked, it looked like, like an international treaty, exactly. <laughs> and he says, yes, but you don't have my permission. <laughs> and, there, and then he takes us to this office and on the walls of this little jail were like crudely done paintings of um, policemen beating half-naked women with sticks. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, he's probably drawing from memory and he's probably the artist. So he thought, we really don't want, we want to get out of here. So we managed to pay a bribe and then we take off for the uh, Wamba, this pygmy chimp or Bonobos research station. Um, while we're there, um, a emissary from the Commandante arrives by bicycle about two days later, breathless, we give him a meal and he says, oh, uh, Commandante, um, it requires you to return to uh, what is it, Jolu, for for urgent discussions. You know, clearly he figured we'd lowballed him on the bribe, and he wanted to extract some more. So we fed the guy, as I said, and we sent him back and say, well, not convenient now. We'll get back when we can. Figuring that by the time he got back and and then the returned with a force or whatever else, um, I'd be out of there anyway. Um, and um, that's exactly what happened. So. In the meantime, we heard a story uh, from uh, the, uh, uh, Dr. Kano, who ran the research station, that he'd, had, he'd caught a poacher, for instance, and uh, sent one of his uh, workers uh, to go to the um, commandante to arrest the poacher. He was doing a, a killing Bonobos, which is against the law. Um, the commandante realized that the poacher probably didn't have any money, but Kano did, and so he promptly arrested the worker and held him for ransom from uh, Kano until Kano paid enough to get him out. And so that, that ended that. So I was laughing about that. And then from, um, I, I flew from there to uh, Basankusu, where um, I had arranged to hire a boat. To, I was trying to get to another 
uh, Bonobos Research Station called Lamaco, which is really about the hardest place to get to on the planet, I think. And um, <laughs> what had happened was uh, the, uh, I won't go into the, all the details, but um, uh, the boat I'd hired, the, uh, the, uh, one of the uh, workers at the plantation was running his own little business with that boat. And the day I was to arrive to pick up the boat and head up river, um, I saw it in port with about 20 people sitting on it about to head in the other direction. And, and a Keystone cop scene ensued where we tried to stop him and he, he took off and the boat broke down. And he, anyway, um, while I was in Basancuso, um, the, uh, the local missionary was regaling me with some of the tales of what was going on in town. And uh, these are Mill Hill missionaries who are, I, I, were basically saintly people. Um, uh, they, uh, they were only about seven of them. They provided all the health care. They weren't trying to, uh, you know, uh, they, the missionaries have a bad name in much of Africa and much of the world for, uh, you know, destroying local cultures and things like that. These guys were sensitive to it. And they were, they were much loved within the town, and they, they, led, they led a very simple life, but they, they performed a lot of essential services. Well, anyway, he was telling me about local justice in Basakusu. It so happened that while I was there, just before I arrived, um, some poor girl had been raped by somebody in the town. So the f outraged family had gone to the police and said, we must arrest the perpetrator. Everybody knew who he was. So they said, well, how much is it worth to you to arrest the perpetrator? And, you know, they arrived at a figure. So then the police hustled over to the perpetrator's house and said, well, the victims are bidding this much to have you arrested. How much is it worth to you not to be arrested? And they got another figure, and the bidding was still going on while I was there. So that's how justice was meted out. And so, you know, one of the other takeaways from my book is that while this is, you know, it's clearly outrageous, um, we shouldn't be too quick to judge because I'm just thinking about, you know, what has been happening um, since the financial crisis. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, Bernie Madoff. <laughs> well, yeah. But, um, you know, there, there hasn't been one of the big bank bigwigs who's gone to jail, mm -hmm. you know, for, for this. And clearly they're the ones who are able to bid in Congress and, you know, who have the ear of the prosecutors and everything else. So, well, it, it is kind of keystone cops in, in Central Africa in terms of justice to the highest bidder. You know, it's, it's unclear whether it's happening here as well. You know, one of the things that you were talking about, uh, the missionaries providing health care, but one of the things you point out is that in Africa, at least, a lot of the, um, the problem with the, the modern health care is that it's way too expensive and right. that, the, that the African herbal remedies are, are better and cheaper and they're right there growing, at, literally growing on trees. That's exactly right. And, and that was one of the, the byproducts of this cultural Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. For instance, while I was in Jolu, the, um, the missionaries were telling me that you know, they couldn't afford Western medicines. And so they tried to reconstitute some of the old herbal remedies that they'd learned, but they, they couldn't quite remember them. And so they, at the mission, they were seeing a lot of people with severe injuries to the rectum, for instance. And one of the chief ways in which uh, herbal medicine was delivered was through suppositories. So they'd either get the wrong plant or they'd get the dose wrong, and then, so they'd see a lot of burns. But also when I was in Africa, um, I've, on the other side of the coin, I, I, I was, uh, came across a guy, and this is in Central African Republic, who'd been raised as a Western uh, nurse, you know, he'd, he'd been given training. And he noticed that a lot of the medicines that he was uh, being taught about were plant-based. And he remembered, because before he'd gone to uh, Western medical uh, training, he'd been raised um, in a traditional tribal society and learned a lot of herbal remedies. And um, he uh, thought, gee, you know, my people can't afford these Western medicines. But um, if, if, if I could find some of the ones that worked, you know, maybe I'll be able to treat some of these problems. Uh, the guy's name was Bernard Endonazi. And uh, while I was there, there was a very dramatic meeting. Now, I, li li this wasn't staged or anything else because I just showed up. He had no idea I was coming. Um, but he, before he, uh, what, what had happened was he was showing me a case of how he treated a guy um, who had uh, some separating wound in his chest that, um, where his chest cavity was virtually exposed. And it, it, it was, looked like something out of CIS, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
and he'd remembered that that kind of, um, it, you know, it was like a fungal ailment or something, um, that when he was young, he was told you treat that with a poultice made out of termites, a particular uh, species of termite. So he created this poultice, applied it to the man's chest, and the wound was healed. And the guy had gone to a Western clinic and nothing had been able to done, be done. Well, while I was there, the guy himself showed up because it was a Sunday, and every Sunday, and thanks for what this guy, uh, Bernard Indodazzi, had done, he would show up with, he'd walk like 10 miles from his village and show up with a small gift. Um, and then he showed me his chest, which was completely healed. Now, in your, you write for Condé Nast, but you travel to a lot of places that nobody could, would either A, want to, or B, actually be able to go. And one of the places you went, I thought it was most interesting that you talk about, is Antarctica. Yeah, uh, Antarctica is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic place. I mean, it's, it's like, I would imagine a geophysicist would love it because it's so simple. It's pure, isn't it? It's a desert. Yeah, well, it's absolutely a desert. Um, if you could have a desert with two miles of ice on it, but um, and, but there is actually a desert in Antarctica. It's called the Dry Valleys, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know it hasn't rained there. You know, you you might count the years in the millions since <laughs> since it's rained. I was at the foot of a. Um, there's a whole bunch of glaciers that intrude on it, but they, they, they sort of stop at the edge of the valley. Mm -hmm. And you'll be at the, at the front of face of one of these glaciers, and uh, one of the scientists would point out, say, uh, well, you'd look a few feet away, and he'd say, well, that gravel's where it was you know, 10,000 years ago, and then you go out another 20 feet, and say, well, that's where it was a million years ago. So this has just been an exquisite balance between you know, there's enough precipitation behind the glacier to continue to feed it, and there's a process of sort of uh, with, uh, evaporation without melting. It's mm. called ablation that goes on. And then, so it's in, in perfect balance. The, the, the glacier's moving into the valley and, and sort of melting at the same time. And this is probably one of the most stable uh, um, places on Earth. And, you know, several million years, these places, these this valleys have been dry. There's really nothing that lives in them except nematodes. Um, and then there are these lakes. And um, <laughs> these lakes are—they would have like 15 feet thick ice on them, right? Mm -hmm. And in the, in the Antarctic summer, they'd start to melt. And like, what would every now and then, its seal would miss, you know, would go wrong and get onto one of these lost in the dry valleys, nothing to eat, they'd die, and they'd end up on top of this ice. And then they would because they're a dark body, they absorb sunlight, so they'd melt down through the ice, and they'd <laughs> gradually sink. And then the ice forms from the body, bottom, and so they'd reach, they'd, they'd reach a point of equilibrium, and then they'd start rising again, and they'd be really, you know, in hyper-slow time, they'd be bobbing up and down for thousands and thousands <laughs> of years in this thing. And the other, the other great thing about it, Antarctica is it, it plays all these optical illusions with you. Um, for instance, I, Sometimes a seal will die and it'll end up on an ice floe, and then the ice will carry down to the water uh, or to the edge. It will get shoved out and it'll break off and it'll float out to sea. And um, the sunlight, you know, through refraction and everything else, can play tricks so that as it's floating out to sea, and, and, and the seal will sometimes appear to be standing. And so, essentially, the you know through geophysics, Antarctica can re recreate these Arthurian burial, burial rites as the seal heads off to his icy Avalon. Now, the Antarctic is less susceptible to the effects of climate change than the Arctic, but it's still susceptible. And I believe you saw some uh, evidence of that. Well, there is evidence. Um, the The Antarctic is like completely surrounded by water. So it's thermally isolated from the rest of the um, rest of the planet, basically. Um, and the thing is called the Antarctic vortex that forms around it. Um, it. It doesn't encompass the entire peninsula, which has been warming dramatically, you know, the, outside the vortex. Um, but it, it encompasses most of it, and it prevents storms from getting into Antarctica for, and the cold from leaving, essentially. And um, and it's very different from the Arctic in that regard. The Arctic can shed heat and it can also uh, import heat, as mm -hmm. we saw this winter, actually, um, from, the, from, the, from the southern latitudes. Um, and uh, 
but they, they are seeing changes. Um, and when I first went there, when I went there, rather, um, there was a thought that, gee, uh, uh, climate change could have an impact on Antarctica. It's definitely having an impact on the peninsula. And you're seeing some impact. You know, there, I think there might have been a thunderstorm at McMurdo at one point, you know, of weather that you'd never seen before. Not a thunderstorm, but rain. Um, and uh, then, you know, in the intervening years, people have begun to say, gee, maybe something, we, we are going to see some changes, which is uh, in a more rapid time scale. And, you know, even the dry valleys that I talked about a few years after I was there, they had like a completely unprecedented event with um, essentially a flood uh, where temperatures got to uh, very high above freezing. There was a huge amount of melting. There's this, um, this tiny little river called the Onyx that you could step across, um, you know, and that's Antarctica's great mighty river. Um, well, during this period, I think it was 2001, um, the Onyx actually became a stream, you know, and and all the lakes, the algal mats got washed out, and all there were huge changes. And so the the question was, gee, was this like the first time in a few million years that you've seen changes like this? Because it changed the whole contours of the of the lakes and everything else. Um, or was this um, something that had happened before and just not been noticed? Um, so, yeah, there are signs of, of change. Um, there's worries about the ice streams in the West in the West Antarctic ice sheet. Where, whether they're um, beginning to speed up their flow, because this would be a huge impact on the rest of the world. If um, you know, there's something called the grounding line. It's where the ice ice sheet is attached to the earth and um, uh, to the to the uh, to the, the ground beneath it. Um, if it, with it, with warming and for whatever reason, um, if that grounding line gets too much under the ice, you know all sorts of bad things could happen, that the sheet could begin floating and that would be a real mess. Um, and um, these ice sheets are transporting a lot of ice, uh, I mean the ice streams within the ice sheet transport a lot of ice to the, uh, to the, to the coast and, and so there's all sorts of questions now about whether something rapid might happen mm -hmm. to the ice sheets in Antarctica. and. Um, Rapid means how fast? Well, that's Months, uh, well, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, there's also a question about the Greenland ice sheet, which has had uh, huge amount of melting, um, and you know that I'll have to. I would double check myself, but I think uh, the, the Greenland ice sheet could raise uh, sea levels by twenty feet, uh, seven feet, Jeez. something like that, which would be a massive impact on places like Florida and Bangladesh and around the world. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the, these places that we, we tend to take for granted and look stable may not be as stable as, uh, as we think. And, you know, one of the, when I was in the Arctic, I mean, one of the big issues is what's happening with the permafrost, which is turning out not to be as permanent as the name would imply. Mm -hmm. And um, you're seeing it's almost like a stage set being changed, you know. As the, Interesting as, analogy. Yeah, because it, it happens so fast. Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, you know, what, it, what is permafrost can become kind of swampland and you get a whole different set of creatures and, who are more adapted to swampland and then you get release huge amounts of methane uh, which are trapped in the ice and the permafrost and which are, methane is 30 times as potent as a greenhouse trap, uh, you know, a greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide and so then you could get um, a great fear of like a, a runaway warming. The albedo changes. The word albedo becomes important. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, certainly a dark surface is going to uh, absorb more heat than uh, than the, uh, the great percentage of, of, of heat that gets reflected back into space by a white surface. So just the color of the ground is an enormously important thing in terms of not just the warming of the earth, but the, uh, the, the air currents above it and where precipitation lands and how it moves. Um, so there are all these impacts that are going on. I mean, in the Midway Island, you know, if uh, if uh, the, the monk seals, for instance, the young monk seals have to travel to these mm -hmm. these convergence zones to feed, you know, as these things these zones move further north, you know, as the as the cold areas retreat, um, 
it, they may have to go too far, you know. And in Antarctica, the emperor penguins, you know, they they have to spend a certain amount of time on the ice um, before they can uh, on the perimeter of the ice. Um, before they can dive into the water, before they're strong enough to dive in the water and evade leopard seals and feed and everything else. Well, as the ice at the perimeter is melting earlier, they're being forced to jump into the water, you know, before they're able to uh, really survive. And so you've got just countless effects that are going on because every creature on Earth is adapted to a particular climate. Now, there's, some are more adaptable than others and can change with others, but if you have a, you know, a, a mating cycle and a birth cycle that's been, you know, worked out over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, and then you suddenly change it in a matter of a few years, you know, the animals often can't adapt. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're left in the lurch. And we're seeing that in the Pacific, you know, in places like Midway, in the Antarctic, in the Arctic, and everywhere else. Now, this book, as I said, collects a lot of your writings over all the years. So I'd like you to just finish with a, some of your thoughts, you know, as a, your perspective. You started this project as a young man, mm -hmm. striking out in the world, inexperienced. Now here are, you know, one of the world's most seasoned and best experienced explorers and reporters. And you've seen this stuff personally. You yourself are a barometer of change. Right. Well, I mean, one of the takeaways for me um, is that what, why is it that we won all these battles in conservation, you know, protecting the Indoki, um, you know, protecting Midway Island, you know, all around, you can point to all these things. There are great efforts going on in the Amazon, um, you know, Indonesia's changing its practices, and yet almost always it's when most of the stuff is gone, you know, it's almost always too late, and that we're losing the war in every respect. There really isn't an ecosystem on the planet that isn't uh, in jeopardy, and they're just tens of thousands of species that are going to go the way of the dodo bird. And so how is it that we're at this state despite all these, uh, all these warnings and all these things? And the, the best I can come up with is that it's, it really is the system itself. I mean, I'm, I sound like a 60s radical, which I'm not, but um, what we have is individual brilliance around the world and collective stupidity. And, you know, we see, we see it at every turn. Um, you know, we saw it in the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. You know, we're after the Exxon Valdez, after the, I pronounced that wrong, Ixtop or Ishtop oil spill of 79. Everybody puts in place all these uh, regulations to prevent another oil spill. And then we systematically dismantle those regulations. We see it in the financial crisis after the Great Depression. Glass-Steagall was put into place to prevent the investment banks to do the very thing that they did uh, once, when it was repealed in 1998, and then it brought the financial system to the point of collapse. Um, and now we have Dodd-Frank coming in. I would bet anybody any amount of money that, you know, after a few years, um, people will start uh, watering down Dodd-Frank. And what I realized is that, um, you know, they're, they're really, the, it's the incentives of the way we practice uh, free market capitalism which are totally weighted towards um, those with highly motivated people with access to the levels of levers of power. Um, and, you know, at every turn, um, private interest, which is very much vested in short-term gain, is going to overrule the long-term interests of society. And that's what we've seen in the United States um, for 30 years. Um, and that's what we've seen um, around the world, as everybody else has adopted our model. And, you know, uh, let me stipulate. I mean, I, communism was even worse for the environment. I mean, uh, it seemed to be a system that was designed to convert resources into pollution with very little economic benefit. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it's not like I'm, I'm not arguing for that. I mean, but there is a, there is a middle ground. I mean, the regulation is not a dirty word. Canadians survived the... Um, the uh, uh, financial crisis with very little ill effects because they have a highly regulated banking system. And, and so I know I'm, we're talking about environment, but it's, it's one thing, which is that um, the, uh, we have a system that is really basically engineered um, at, to, to, uh, for exploitation without any kind of governor on it. And at some point we'll wake up, but I'm afraid it'll be too late. So that's what I've seen. Um, one last word on Cuba, by the way. Um, 
this year is the 50th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is a disaster. I went to the Bay of Pigs, and while it was a disaster for the U.S., and it, uh, um, it's kind of a conservation triumph um, in the sense that sometime in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, it goes back even further. Here's a, here's a place where a communist system's in place, and yet they have probably the best protected uh, natural systems in the western, in the, of any of the islands in the Caribbean, and perhaps in the Western Hemisphere. And it's all because of an accident of history, which is that a guy who uh, saved Castro's life during the revolution happened to be, and was elevated very high up in the command, happened to be a nature lover. And um, he um, provided political cover for a whole generation of conservationists. And then, when Cuba went to the Earth Summit, they might have been the only country on Earth that went to the Earth Summit of 1991 and took it seriously, or 1992, sorry, and took it seriously. Um, they began implementing a whole lot of conservation um, uh, policies that are, you know, are still going on today. And so. Um, Zapata Swamp, which is structurally similar to the Everglades, is, is like a paradise of birds and everything else. And I, then I sort of did a thought experiment. I said, well, what would have happened had the Bay of Pigs revolution, uh, you know, invasion succeeded? Well, definitely a lot of Cubans who are poor would have gotten rich. Um, they would have definitely, the average Cuban would have uh, gotten to and taste the joys of McDonald's and Burger King and, uh, and Maybe we'd have an obesity crisis in Cuba like we have here today. But the, the, the larger point is, is that Zapata Swamp would not look like it was, it mm -hmm. does today. Um, this is no way an endorsement of an authoritarian society. It is only to say that, you know, again, nature takes its opportunities where it finds them. And you, you can't really be doctrinaire about um, what system is best or what not. It's that, um, you look at the incentives for, for people, and if what we need today, the takeaway for, of, of all these years of writing about this, is that we desperately need something that encodes the interests of the long term in decision making that we make today. Not, I, I'm not naive enough to think that we'll have some sort of seventh generation kind of thinking, but I do think that there is a place you know, for regulation. There is a place for understanding and tempering incentives um, so that you can't really risk the whole society, the financial system or an ecosystem or anything else, um, just for private gain. Eugene, your book concludes with a plan to help us avert uh, the disasters that seem to be at every door. Talk uh, uh, about uh, global conservation. Well. I mean, after years of sort of thinking about this, I found a couple of things that you could, lessons you could draw. One was that you really want results on the ground. It's not how you got there, it's the results you actually, and you want them to be enduring. And secondly, you've got to do things at the scale of the problem. Um, so let's say you're trying to save a rainforest the size of the Congo rainforest. You can't save a part of it because in, if it, shrinks too much, um, it'll have its own effects on the change in precipitation, and you'll lose the forest itself. So I, thinking about this, uh, I came up with an idea which tries to use some of the incentives of the market um, and a, a kind of notion of healthy competition, which is to try and get people um, to coordinate, you know, all the government agencies, international agencies, uh, conservation groups, local peoples, everybody, and that is to, to, to devise a kind of grid the size of the Congo rainforest, like um, maybe 100, 100 uh, squares, 80 miles on a side or whatever, and to find a way of where people would or groups could take ownership in the sense of trying to achieve results, not literal ownership, but just to try and slow deforestation and help preserve ecosystems. And um, where the mosaic of all these grids would achieve uh, continental scale conservation. And the, the, the beauty of the idea, if I can say that, is that you're not imposing from the top how you do it. Um, what you're trying to do is foster a healthy competition and also create a test bed where some ideas will work and maybe be adopted by others and where other experiments will fail and, and uh, 
people will shift to new new strategies. Um, I published this. I, I, I did it actually with Tom uh, Lovejoy and Dan Phillips, who had been ambassador to the Congo, and published this in uh, earlier in uh, the 2000s uh, in Foreign Affairs as a, as a proposed way of dealing with, with this issue at the scale of the problem. Um, if there is a frailty in the idea is that um, it, it, uh, it requires a kind of uh, cooperation that uh, all these groups are competing for funds. They're not necessarily incentivized to cooperate with one another for a larger good. Um, I'm still hoping, you know, at some point. But, you know, that's my idea um, for, for how something might be achieved to sort of halt this potential train wreck. Um, I'm totally open to anybody else's idea as well. You know, that reminds me of the this stretch of roadway taken care of by the uh, <laughs> soccer right, club right, yeah. of America. This this square of forest maintained by. Right. Now, um, so you've published this in Foreign Affairs. Uh, how could do you think that this could be taken to the next level? I mean, where do we go from to do that? Well, I think what you need is enough people to sign on to develop a kind of very light structure to oversee it. And what with satellite data, you can actually, without even going on the ground, you know, sort of map uh, both the composition and the size of the forest. So it would be very easy to, and the thought would uh, be that, you know, you launch something like this with, uh, you know, a kind of bidding war. You're, you're bidding not to take out resources, but to put in resources. And uh, once people have got their little block, or their rather giant block, rather, um, let a thousand flowers bloom. Go at it as you would. And then in five years, um, you, you sort of assay the results. And it's very easy to sort of follow up. Um, and also in the interim, you could follow up. So what I envisioned was that with a fairly low investment, you could actually um, really uh, achieve an oversteership. And actually, that, that sounds too... Uh, too totalitarian. It really a, a monitoring for a, a for a, a continental scale effort. I've been speaking with Eugene Linden. His new book is the ragged edge of the world. <clears throat> the ragged edge of my voice. I've been speaking with Eugene Linden. His new book is the ragged edge of the world. Thank you for joining me, Eugene. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.